Welcome, I'm Mike Grimes here again with Pat Abendroth, and today we are going to be talking about issues of law and gospel. And we want to begin by looking at the law-gospel paradigm. And so, Pat, I just want to ask you to start, uh, help us understand a little bit about what is the law-gospel paradigm. Mike, what we're talking about is an approach, an approach to reading and understanding or interpreting the Bible. And we're using those two words, law and gospel, uh, to designate two categories. So what we mean is everything in the Bible falls under either law, what God requires, or gospel, what God graciously provides in meeting the obligation of the law. So we call it a paradigm. Uh, It's an approach. Um, It's a way of interpreting, understanding. Certainly, if we're going to teach, we have to interpret. So this is for those who teach the Bible, those who read the Bible. Uh, Anyone who really wants to understand uh, needs to be introduced to the law gospel paradigm or approach to interpreting Scripture. So when we're talking about law and gospel here today, we're really talking about uh, how we read and understand Scripture. It goes with hermeneutics. Yep, we're back to hermeneutics again. Yeah, and so law being that which God requires of us, and gospel being what God graciously provides. Yep, we have to keep those two straight and separate. They complement each other in ways we'll talk about. But it's definitely a hermeneutical issue, and strangely enough... um, Sometimes it's left out of hermeneutics. And so as we talk through the issues, I hope our listeners will appreciate why it actually needs to be included and why it's really fundamental in in having this kind of clear distinction. So when we're talking about law and gospel, one thing we might want to clear up from the get-go is by law and gospel, we do not mean the Old Testament verse the New Testament, correct? Correct. We definitely don't mean that, but it's really important that you bring it up because sometimes people hear us that way. Hmm. And so uh, even, again, to those who are listening, if you talk about law and gospel and you understand uh, this is a hermeneutical approach and you embrace it, just know that when you talk about law, gospel, law, gospel paradigm, oftentimes people are thinking, oh, you mean Old Testament versus New Testament. Right. And we definitely don't mean that because we read the Old Testament and it has law, but it also has gospel. And then we read the New Testament. And as you might have guessed, <laughs> the New Testament New Testament has law and it also has gospel. And probably we, we don't want people to just take our word for it. Think, of, think in terms of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord or mercy. Uh, or Abraham and Abraham 12, or excuse me, Abraham 12, <laughs> Genesis 12 or 15. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. That would be God's gracious provision. That would be gospel. And then it gets more complicated maybe when we move to the New Testament because people forget uh, that the New Testament definitely includes gospel. Yeah but also law because uh, the New Testament talks about loving God and that really ends up being the essence of what God requires. So it's the essence of, of the law. Love is the essence of law. I think a lot of times when I talk to people about law and gospel and you ask them about the law or what is the law, they, they're immediately drawn to Moses. They're immediately drawn to the Ten Commandments 
and the Exodus account, and we certainly have law there. And so I think that that really takes over in people's minds. Um, so then they, they draw that distinction. Well, law, Old Testament, Moses, we're going to keep that there. And then gospel, we're going to talk about Jesus and his cross work, and we're going to keep that in the New Testament. Uh, so it is very helpful for us to uh, encourage our listeners even to think law and gospel is everywhere in both the Old and New Testament. And we really want to understand that because uh, it, it changes the way you understand the scriptures, honestly. It does, and it changes even the way you understand the significance of the work of Christ, uh, how you apply the Bible as well, which we're all wanting to do. It's definitely an issue. It's definitely a problem. Uh, pro- it probably comes from uh, our theological illiteracy, and I'm not trying to put anyone down. We just tend to be theologically illiterate. Oftentimes, we don't realize that the word law can be used in different ways. Sometimes it's in reference to the Mosaic law. Sometimes it's in reference to law in general. So it's not necessarily uh, only Mosaic. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, maybe we should turn to a text that would help help to clarify law in the New Testament because we don't want people to take our word for it. So I think we should look at Luke 10. So maybe we can walk our way through that and talk through it a little bit where we have it on good authority, uh, according to Jesus, uh, what the law is. And the law basically means love God and love neighbor. Mm -hmm. So in Luke 10, uh, verse 25, which is really critical in understanding this whole thing, we read these words, uh, and behold, a lawyer, an expert in the law, Uh, not as in an attorney that we would think of, but a lawyer stood up to put him, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So I'll just pause for a moment and stress, he is asking a question, uh, not about successful temporal living, not about a blessed life uh, per se, but eternal life. Verse 26 says, He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, this is verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28 then says, and he, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So Jesus affirms the essence of the, of the law is to love God appropriately uh, and to love neighbor appropriately. And Jesus affirms that he's on the right track. He's thinking the right way. And he says, if you do those things, if you perfectly obey the law, you will have eternal life. But for now, before we get ahead of ourselves, law equals loving God and loving neighbor. So if I could only, if I could, if we could only uh, help Everyone who ever hears the Bible taught know that God's requirement to obey is summarized by love. We could make a lot of traction. Yeah, I think that's been a helpful distinction uh, you've tried to make from the pulpit here at our church, and it's been super helpful to some of our church members um, to hear that when we're talking about law, we're talking about loving God and loving neighbor, and two, that this is something that's always required of us. This is something that if we're going to follow and obey God's law, this has to be something that we're personally doing perfectly, perpetually, perpetually, right? (laughs) I love those three Ps are super helpful to me when I think about law. Yep. Yep. Great way to summarize all of this. And just to use an example, just how much confusion there is about this. I I've read, um, 
more than one theologian say that the Old Testament emphasized law, but the New Testament emphasizes love. Hmm. And really, they couldn't be more incorrect at dividing the Bible that way. Yeah. Because yeah. really, love is law and law is love. Yeah. Uh, that's what we're called to, to do. So if we can help people understand this, it really would help, I think, uh, even in understanding the Bible. Maybe we should ever so briefly, at least for now, notice that Jesus does say in Luke 25, or excuse me, Luke 10, 25 to 28, that if you love God this way, uh, you will gain eternal life. Mm -hmm. And so I can't tell you for how long I was a Christian and didn't really pay attention to that. The way to gain eternal life, at least in principle, in theory, is to love God personally, perpetually, and perfectly, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, if you do this, you will live. You will live as in context determines meaning, gain eternal life. So my question for you, Mike, is how many people have done that? <laughs> None. No one does good. Not even one. We read in Romans and... Uh... We we can't do this. Correct. What's required? It's it's impossible. It's impossible for all the sons and daughters of Adam. So uh, we just have to know that what Jesus is affirming is true, but it's why we might say it's true in principle. Mm. Uh, it's not true for the man he's speaking with because that man is already a son of Adam. So, but it is nevertheless principally true. Um, and there was one who did it perfectly. Uh, he did this so that he might gain eternal life, who would be none other than Christ the Lord. But for our sake right now, we just want to point out love equals law, law equals love. And so if we want to understand what God requires, what his law expects, it's perfect love, perfect love of God, perfect love and appropriate love of neighbor. That's what the law is. And so may we forever and always uh, think of law in terms of loving God and loving neighbor. And we will really get some good hermeneutical traction. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really helpful just even to boil it down to that simplistic form uh, to help us remember as we're reading through the scriptures and trying to understand um, who who are some people that would affirm this law-gospel distinction or a law-gospel paradigm? Where does that come from? Who affirms this? Well, we find examples of the distinction even before the Protestant Reformation. But really where it gets hammered out because you're in the crucible, so to speak, and fighting for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and kind of on account of Christ alone, where it gets developed, uh, formalized, um, beefed up, if you will, settled, uh, we see with the Protestant Reformation. And so to, to give the shorthand answer, who, who affirms this? Protestants affirm this. Uh, it's a distinctively Protestant kind of doctrine. After that, so we could say Martin Luther, but not just Martin Luther, also Calvin, who would come after him, uh, Beza, who would come after him. I've got a couple of great quotes here from those who are uh, part of the Protestant Reformation that might edify uh, our listeners. So this is Theodore Beza. He's Calvin's successor in Geneva, and he writes this, and I quote, We divide this word meaning the Bible, into two principal parts or kinds. The one is called the law, the other, the gospel. For all the rest can be gathered under the one or the other of these two headings. He goes on to say, we must pay great attention to these things. For with good reason, we can say that ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted past tense and still corrupt Christianity. 
end of quotation, super helpful quote uh, by Beza. Yeah, that's uh, great. When he's all the rest can be gathered under one or the other of these two headings. So, I mean, we're, so we're in good company, Mike, when yeah. we say um, these two words, uh, law and gospel, uh, it, we're, we're standing really in the in the history of the Protestant Reformation. Another good quote would be from, fast forward quite a bit to William Perkins, uh, and he has a classic little book on preaching called The Art of Prophesying, uh, a little banner of truth book. I remember picking it up when I was a seminary student. Uh, Along the same lines, he says this, the basic principle in application is to know whether the passage is a statement of the law or of the gospel. A statement of the law indicates the need for a perfect inherent righteousness of eternal life given through the works of the law of the sins, which are contrary to the law and of the curse that is due them. By contrast, a statement of the gospel speaks of Christ and his benefits and of faith being fruitful in good works. So there's William Perkins, The Art of Prophesying. And before we end, I want to round it out with a Baptist because some <laughs> who listen are Baptists, uh, thankfully. Uh, Spurgeon uh, said something to the effect, and I won't quote it exactly other than this. He who understands the distinction, and he's talking about the distinction we're talking about, uh, Spurgeon labels as a master of divinity. Hmm. So I, I love that quote because if you can figure this out, Uh, You are a master theologian, uh, regardless of who you are. And so I really appreciate all of those quotations, but I really like the one from Spurgeon because it keeps it real simple. Yeah. And it just highlights the importance of this doctrine of understanding the distinction between law and gospel. Uh, Let's let's talk a little bit more about that and why a law-gospel paradigm is so important for us to understand. And maybe even before we go there, I want to go there for sure. I'm dying to. But um, lest lest people think that this is very heady or ethereal, uh, this is only for theologians and seminaries and things like that, I actually think one of the reasons why the Protestant reformers wanted to hammer this out and iron it out and make it simple, number one, because I think it was biblical and they did as well, but they were really trying to disciple their people. Hmm helping their people who would now have Bibles in their own native tongue, their own native language, make heads and tails of things because there are a lot of commands in the Bible. There's, there are a lot of laws and there also is a great emphasis on promise. So, so how do we sort it out and how do we find our way and not be confused by the, by the priest craft? Yeah. So let's, let's remember this is actually meant for us. Yeah. And so that makes sense because if you're going to put the Bible back in the hands of the people, you want to help them understand how to read it, how to know what's required of them, help them understand when the scriptures are pointing to the glories of Christ and what he has done and the benefits of his work for us. Uh, So it's important for us to, in line with that, understand that law gospel paradigm as well. Yep. Yep. And we can encourage everyone from the youngest to the oldest to, to adopt this and to, to be able to be um, helped by it. So Absolutely. it's not just for us. Yeah. So let's move on then to talk about what makes this so important. And the first thing on my list would be that it, it's so important because it's important to the gospel. So if we're not clear on what God requires of us mm. and what God provides through the work of Christ, not through us, we're going to be unclear on the gospel. We're going to be unclear in particular regarding the doctrine of justification. 
So God doesn't declare us righteous because we're obedient to his law. Hmm. Because as you indicated, there's none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3. So we need a righteous substitute. We need someone who kept the law for us. He meets the obligation of law. And then it comes to us freely, though it cost him greatly. It comes to us freely. Law, gospel, what God requires, what God graciously provides. It's important because if if we're wrong on this, we're going to be wrong on on justification. That made me think while you're talking about that. Some, uh, I think, listeners may, if this is a new kind of paradigm or distinction for them, be thinking, you know, we're talking a lot about what is, this is what God requires of us. And we we highlighted Luke 10, Mm -hmm. uh, where Jesus talked about do this and live. Is there any other passage, even just thinking off the top of your head, where we see what God requires, that personal, perfect, perpetual obedience uh, that God expects us if we want to earn salvation to obey his commands and not fall in one area. Well, does that make sense? Sure. I guess I, I think of the sermon on the Mount where when Jesus says that you have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. uh, It doesn't get more vivid and stark than that. And I think sometimes people have out of ignorance of the law gospel paradigm, they scramble and try to figure out some way to explain away that passage to mean something other than lest you are perfect, uh, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Um, We, God requires, as you say, um, perfect personal perpetual obedience, perfect obedience. Otherwise there is no salvation. There is no, no light of day in the kingdom. And then knowing that and hearing this law gospel distinction, you know, we come to understand that by works of the law, no man will be justified. And so when we see that that's required of us, then this law gospel distinction is helpful then because as we see what God is requiring, we see our own sin. Uh, It helps us look to our perfect, righteous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust in him for our salvation alone, not our own uh, doing, not our own works. Which is why Protestants have a robust category and place for Christian assurance. Yeah. So we believe in the assurance of the believer. And the reason we do is because there is a strict law and Christ strictly met the obligations of the law and we're trusting in his work on our behalf. So it's important for the gospel. It's also important um, for assurance because there's no condemnation for us because someone kept the law for us. The obligation has been met. Uh, so that's another reason. Uh, and then another, uh, a third reason I have. So it's important because justification, it's also important for assurance. It's also, in addition, it's important when it comes to understanding Christian obedience, which causes us to turn a little bit down a different aisle, if you will. Sure. But if we're going to understand Christian obedience, we'd better understand the law gospel paradigm. Yeah. I think when I, when we talk about law gospel paradigm and you think about, well, if, the law is my obedience to the law is not going to be what saves me because of my sinful nature and my inability to keep God's law. And I'm going to trust Christ, the perfect righteous one for my salvation. What is my relationship with the law? Then I guess that means we just push it over to the side and we ignore that that's over here because by works of the law, no man will be justified. So we just set that over here because I'm justified by Christ alone What's that relationship and how, how does this play in with our obedience as Christians, our relationship to the law? What is? Yes. Well, 
the reason it becomes um, important and clear is because we are called to obey God's law still, but we're obeying God's law out of a new position, we mm-hmm. might say, out of a new relationship with God. Think in terms of Romans 8, where it says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you've trusted in Christ as your law keeper, there is no condemnation for you because you're united to Christ by faith. And yet you're called to obey. Uh, The law's requirement is still the same, uh, to love God and love neighbor appropriately, fittingly, however else it's stated. It still is the same requirement. But now we have a new status, a new relationship, a new standing. And so we want to obey God still, but now we have the ability to. Um, now we're not cowering in fear of condemnation. Uh, he's, he's Papa. He's Daddy. Um, he's, we've been accepted in, in the beloved, if you will. Hmm. So Romans 8 is really helpful when it comes to this matter, I think, of obedience. And if we blur law and gospel... We're going to try to do it all based upon obedience, justification that is, or part of justification based upon obedience, when, when in fact, justification is all of Christ. And now that it is all of Christ, we want to do the right thing out of gratitude, as the reformers would say, um, because of our new status. And so this, this is why uh, in traditional Protestant thought, this is why there are different uses of the law. Mm. So one use would be to lead us to Christ because we need a substitute and we can't meet the perfect obligation. Right. One of the other uses, it's oftentimes called the third use of the, of the law, the second being the civil use with government. Uh, but the third use, um, and oftentimes you will hear Bible teachers and theologians refer to the third use. Well, what they mean is uh, the normative use or uh, the guiding use, if you will, hmm. uh, the fact that we're we're new creatures in Christ. We have a new status. And now we want to do the right thing um, out of that new position. In other words, maybe I'll borrow from the psalmist. It's now a light unto our path. Mm. It's no longer uh, above us as our judge. It is good for us. It's always been good and right. Uh, It also reminds me of even how Jesus in John 13 talks about a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another which always makes me smile because that's not a new commandment. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not a new commandment. That, that's, that's as old as uh, Leviticus, right. which is pretty old. <laughs> so it's a new commandment for different reasons. Uh, but one reason it's a new commandment is because if we're united to Christ as our Savior, we have a new status. That commandment's not going to condemn us. There's no condemnation in Christ but it is going to guide us and it's supposed to guide us. It's third use of the law kind of talk, which really is important. So to kind of summarize, uh, it's really important that we understand the paradigm, the law gospel distinction. So we get the gospel, right? The work of Christ, right? So that we can have assurance and also so we can have obedience and be compelled to obey, but for the right reason out of the right status, um, it really changes our perspective on things. It's simple, and yet um, some have really struggled to be clear about it and to be able to function uh, in light of it. Yeah. As you were talking about that, it made me think of uh, another kind of maybe formula, if you will, that the Reformers used and I've appreciated over the recent years of guilt, grace, gratitude. And when you're talking about law and gospel, it just had me thinking in those uses of the law how the law is a mirror to us, and we recognize our own sinfulness. And that's what we're talking about when we say guilt. Uh, We see our own sin, our guilt before God, a holy and righteous God who requires our 
obedience, and then grace being that gospel term um, of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ by his life, death, and resurrection for us, and by faith and trust in him, we are declared righteous and forgiven. And then gratitude being that new relationship we have with the law of rather than trying to obey God's law to earn our salvation, now that we have been justified, we seek to obey God out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving. And that just came to mind as you were talking about those different uses of the law, and I think sometimes that's a helpful little formula as well. We can maybe talk about that in bigger detail on another episode. But Perfect. Well, and I think that you you said it perfectly and it's really helpful to complement what we're talking about i can't believe you're able to say such a thing even while wearing an iowa hawkeye sweatshirt (laughs) (laughs) just for our listening audience i just want you to know uh that mike is not yet fully sanctified um but one day he will be hey (laughs) you know iowa is as close as you can get to heaven nebraska Uh, we have a saying in, in Nebraska that everyone who fails their driver's test in Iowa gets a blue license plate. So, um, in, uh, inside joke. That's funny. Well, uh, back to the law gospel distinction, not the Nebraska Iowa distinction here. Um, we've talked about what makes it important. Uh, who are some people that would oppose this law gospel paradigm? Opposition comes from different places, kind of different camps, different corners. So maybe we could talk about uh, some of the different places uh, or people who oppose the law gospel paradigm. Uh, I'll start by saying there are those who purposefully oppose it. Uh, They're well-informed. They know why we're emphasizing it, and they on purpose are opposing it. In particular, those who deny justification sola fide. Mm. Uh, those who don't like justification by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. They want it to be justification by faith and faithfulness and or faithfulness, faith and some of our merit uh, or obedience along the way. They really don't like the distinction. So this would top of my list would include Roman Catholicism, uh, which would make sense because they don't believe justification as Protestants do. Right. But there are others who would be considered Protestant, um, even people like Daniel Fuller. He didn't like this distinction. Uh, Daniel Fuller is probably most famous in our day because he was John Piper's mentor. And you see some of this influence in John Piper's uh, theology. Uh, on a more academic uh, level, kind of behind the scenes, uh, Norman Shepard was not a fan at all of the law gospel distinction. Uh, who a long time ago was a professor at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. And those who came after him, some associated with theonomy, who were taught by Shepherd, uh, also um, reject and oppose the law gospel paradigm as something made up and superimposed on Scripture. Sometimes they'll say, that, well, that's just a Lutheran doctrine. It's not a Reformed doctrine, which, as we'll see, is not historically accurate. Mm-hmm. So uh, Karl Barth, people like that, they didn't like it. Uh, There was a whole movement where people tried to put Calvin against the Calvinists Hmm. and basically saying Calvin didn't affirm this, uh, but those who came after him did, which has been shown to be historically unfounded and wrongheaded. Uh, So that would be one area. The people who know they're opposing justification sola fide, uh, they are definitely against the law gospel paradigm. And, And I should say, if you want to be against justification sola fide, 
you definitely want to be against the law gospel paradigm, right? Uh, because they, they the two go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, affirming sola fide and the law gospel paradigm are definitely two peas in a pod. So I understand why they would want to do that. Is there a a, a fear in there as well of well, if we hold to a law gospel paradigm and we're saying that uh, we we want these people to still be about obedience to God's commands. We, you know, they, Hey, if we teach them that they're saved by grace through faith in Christ, they might just kind of set the law to the side and do their thing and have at it. Channeling Richard Baxter. That's definitely the case. And, uh, it's unfortunate, uh, but we, we, we would want to get people to obey out of gratitude yeah. and out of a new standing, uh, not out of fear of condemnation. Yeah. Uh, otherwise it's detracting from the finished work of Christ. Yeah. I think that Romans 8, 1 is so helpful, so important for us to understand. There is no condemnation. Indeed, indeed. Another place where there's opposition, uh, not so much from the informed people we just talked about, but also from those I would call uninformed or less informed. Uh, maybe they just aren't historically literate or theologically um, as informed as others might be. They might have heard, oh, that's a Lutheran doctrine, uh, when in fact, uh, it's not just a Lutheran doctrine. Just ask Beza, we just quoted. Uh, last time I checked, he wasn't very Lutheran. Uh, or Spurgeon. Right. Um, so it is what it is. Some people just don't know. Yeah. I think that would have been the case for me in my Christian life for a long time. Yeah, I would agree with that. Also, those we might call biblicists would also fall under that uninformed uh, camp where they think it's a good idea to kind of... Uh, Oh, get rid of church history, get rid of uh, theological history, and just kind of start over with the Bible, which sounds good and admirable, but they, they fail then to see the water under the bridge, the work of the Spirit in the life of the church, the historical theological battles that have taken, been, uh, that have taken place, and really they fail to, to taste of the sweet fruit um, that is ours and seeing there is a difference between what God requires and what God provides. So there's another place. Any others? What about dispensationalists? What a, they... I think every week you want to talk about dispensationalism. Well, you know, I just, you know, skeletons in the closet, maybe. Okay. It's a dispensational recovery group. It is. Uh, <laughs> wearing Iowa Hawkeye attire. So okay. I digress once again. <laughs> I'm trying to recover in some areas, but others I'm holding fast to. So what about dispensationalists? That would be a third category. And I hate to pick on my dispensational uh, friends and neighbors uh, so much, but if you think about the fact that there are seven dispensations in dispensationalism mm. and one of the dispensations is labeled dispensation of law mm. and it's passed according to dispensationalism and another dispensation is labeled dispensation of grace, it's no wonder that there's confusion Sure, because law is passed and now we have grace. Uh, you're bound to be confused by this whole thing. And what it's common among dispensationalists then is something you referred to earlier is at least a tendency to think law in terms of mosaic only, right. which simply does not hold up under scrutiny of scripture. Doesn't Romans six say something about not being under the law anymore? It does. In fact, in fact, Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, the president or the first president of, of DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote a book about it. Uh, and it's all kinds of confusion. Uh, Romans six does say, in fact, we're not under law, but we're under grace, which I would wholeheartedly agree to. It's a true statement. The question is always what what is meant by what is said. Mm -hmm. 
And what's fascinating about Romans 6 is while Paul says we're not under law, we're under grace, he then from there goes on to talk about obedience and other things that sound uh, very law-like, using words like righteousness, which means adherence to law. So when you read it with your brain turned on without a crazy (laughs) dispensational agenda, I guess, we're no longer under law for justification. We are no longer under law for justification, right? That's chapters one to five. He's made himself so clear, but we definitely are still under law now as believers for our guidance. Otherwise he wouldn't be talking about obedience and righteousness. So it's a great verse. Um, it's a great chapter, but it's greatly misunderstood. Uh, and it's certainly not a reason to discount the law gospel paradigm. Sure. What about uh, any other final opponents? So my fourth one on my list after dispensationalism uh, would be uh, those who are opposed to classic covenant theology. And by classic covenant theology, I mean um, a theological system, uh, a view, a perspective, theological, an approach to the Bible that uses two lenses, uh, the covenant of works. There's the first lens and the covenant of grace. There's the second lens. Uh, which is not exactly the same, but is very similar to the law gospel paradigm. And so almost without exception, when someone wants to move away from the classic covenantal, if you want to be technical, the bi-covenantalism, two covenant, two covenants, works in grace or nature in grace, uh, they're more than likely, uh, I would bet good money on it, not going to like the law gospel paradigm. Sure. Absolutely. We could probably do a whole podcast on that. Uh, we could do that another time, but it's worth mentioning. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. So going off of that a little bit, what happens then, uh, these, you know, people opposing a law gospel paradigm, what, what happens when this law gospel paradigm is not upheld? Dogs, cats living together <laughs> in total, absolute confusion, confusion is what happens. Chaos. It's, it's absolute chaos. Well, different things happen. It's definitely uh, a matter of confusion when it comes to understanding the gospel. I'm not sure who coined the phrase, but I I learned it from Michael Horton, where he talks about now we have gospel. Mm. And what ends up happening is when you have law and gospel blurred or not rightly distinguished, you have gospel and you... Um, you ruin both. Yeah. You end up somehow making the law not so strict and then somehow making the gospel not so grand. Mm-hmm. And now it's a faith and works kind of blend blur. It's going to lead to legalism for salvation or for justification and or it might lead to antinomianism, just kind of living however you want to. Right. And so it really does become a problem. Maybe a couple of good quotations here so people don't think we're just making this up on our own. Uh, There is a book by John Calhoun called A A Treatise on the Law and the Gospel. It's a little bit heady. It's a little bit uh, dated. Uh, He was a Scottish theologian writing in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But he does have a couple of good insights. And, And I quote, if he cannot distinguish the gospel from the law, He will easily be induced to connect his own works with the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the affair of his justification. Hmm. So there's the first quote. You're you're probably going to get justification wrong. Um, And thankfully, I hear preachers who get justification right in a certain context, but then they're in a different passage, in a different context. They're not refuting Catholicism anymore, (laughs) and they sound an awful lot like Roman Catholics because they don't have the distinction clear in their heads. So this next quote from Calhoun is this, 
to know the difference so as to be able to distinguish a right between the law and the gospel is of the utmost importance to the faith, holiness, so now we're getting into obedience, and comfort of every true Christian. So those are things we've been talking about, Mike. Faith, as in the faith, as in justification. Mm -hmm. Holiness, as in godly living, because we know we're in a new standing and we're doing so out of gratitude, as you said. And comfort uh, of every true Christian. Christian, he's talking about that assurance uh, doctrine that's so important to us as believers. And then maybe one more quote about getting it wrong, again, from Spurgeon, because we have to be nice. Um, to We're very ecumenical here uh, on the podcast. So we want to get the Reformed, we want to get the Lutherans, uh, and we also want to get the Baptists. Don't so, forget the Baptists. Right. He says, I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrine of Scripture, and he means Scripture as a whole, are based upon fundamental errors with this regard. So... Uh, that's quite a thing to say. Uh, most people's problems they get themselves into theologically, he's going to say, would be a, a, a failure to see. He would say between covenant of works, covenant of grace, but complementing that um, law and gospel. So I think we, we have it on good authority, I think, from different places within Protestantism that we need to recover this important hermeneutical tool, if you will. Absolutely. So let's maybe do some examples of this that might help our listeners, because we can talk about it all day, um, but then what happens is we go and we read the scriptures and we come across a passage and we're thinking, is this law or is this gospel? And so let's, maybe if I can read you a few passages, and then maybe let's uh, help them see, is that law or is that gospel? Uh, let's start with uh, Philippians 2.12. I'm getting nervous. Philippians 2.12. I'm, I'm the one that has to do this publicly, so listeners can do this at home on their own. You can. Uh, and we can't hear them, but they're going to be able to hear me. So That's right. Philippians 2.12 <laughs> says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your, salva your own salvation with fear and trembling. Is that law or is that gospel? That is ding, 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 ding. We need, we need a bell, we need a uh, like one of our friends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> picking up on the, the final command, which is a command. It's in the imperative. I checked. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, he's writing to believers, uh, and he's calling them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, I have to say law. It's what God requires. Uh, but I would say third use of the law yeah. because... He's talking to people who are in Christ, right? Yep. a light unto their path, but yep. definitely it's law. Yep. Talking to Christians and they're still called to obey God's law out of gratitude. So it's definitely law. Uh, how about a second example here? Let's look at Romans, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 13. Let love be genuine. Oh, I'm already thinking it's law because I heard love, but keep going. <laughs> Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Law, third use. For sure, yeah. But what, what would people typically think that you and I talk to and love and minister to? Well, that's in the New Testament, so right. therefore, it's, that's definitely gospel. That's gospel. And maybe we could 
live the gospel in this way. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> More bad, bad advice. Right. So good. Yeah. That's a great example of law light into our path, not for our justification, but because we have justification. Absolutely. Let's do another one. Let's do another one. Okay. Let's do uh, Romans five, Romans five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gracious provision, therefore gospel. Yep, absolutely. Gospel. What God has done for us in Christ. Gospel. Super. It's awesome. Um, Maybe a couple more here. Uh, Romans, sticking with the Romans theme. Let's look at chapter 12, uh, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Ah, he's writing to brothers, spiritual brothers, uh, by the mercies of God, probably shorthand for all the wonderful things that came before, according to God's grace. Now we're supposed to obey as spiritual worship law, third use light unto my light unto our path. It's good and right and holy, but not for our justification because of our justification. Yeah. All right. Final one. Romans two. Oh, I figured you're going to do that spicy one to me. at the end. This Let's... is, is going to, this is almost a trick question, but it's not a trick question. Romans two verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified law or gospel and not gospel, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> How many people interpret this as gospel and don't know what to do? Uh, I find it to almost be my litmus to find out whether or not I'm going to trust a preacher or not, because if he can't figure out law and gospel in Romans 2.13, um, Calvin would say that he should be laughed at even among children, even mm. by children. Oh. This just should be so clear. So it's definitely law. Uh, strict law, white knuckle, couldn't be clearer law. Um, God doesn't justify the hearers. He justifies the doers. Um, those are the ones who will be justified. That's law because he's building his argument, right? In Romans, uh, Romans, he's getting to Romans three. He's leading us down the Romans road. (laughs) (laughs) And in Romans three, none righteous, no, not one. And so that's why earlier we talked about in principle, something's true. Do this and live. Well, in principle, Romans 2.13 is true. The fact of the matter is no son or daughter, daughter of Adam has ever, ever been able to do this, even though it's been uh, good, righteous, and holy. It's why we need Christ. Christ is the only one who ever uh, not only heard the law, but did the law and therefore was justified appropriately. Uh, and it's because we trust in him that we too are justified based upon his merits, his law doing, not, not ours. And, and Romans 2 really becomes important in this whole thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Long. Well, you passed. You got five out of five. <laughs> and uh, hopefully our listeners did a great job with their guesses as well. And it's a great exercise, I think, when you're reading the Bible, just to look at the passage and say, is this law or is this gospel? It totally changes the way you read your Bible, how you understand Scripture. It's, it's fantastic. It really must. It absolutely must. In one sense, Mike, I think if we could give ourselves for the rest of our days as pastors— And even as Christians who are trying to read the Bible and help others understand it and read it, uh, if we can help people get this, uh, we really will make a lot of headway and see a lot of fruit born and see a lot of people rescued out of um, 
a ball of confusion. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up maybe uh, some resources that you might uh, recommend to our listeners that are going to talk more about this law gospel distinction that might be helpful to them. The first thing on my list is a book where I'm not even sure if he even mentions this. He might, (laughs) but it's been a while since I read it. But the whole book has law gospel fingerprints on it um, and and rightly distinguishing the the two. And it's the book Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. Mm. It's a good popular level book that I recommend to most Christians I meet. It definitely reflects the paradigm we're talking about and and helps people to see that love is the essence of the law. Uh, And so we've got to get that straight. So I'd recommend that first. And I think even other things he's written uh, in our day, in our era, uh, the Lord has really used him to help us understand this distinction afresh, even though it's not a new thing. We've needed to rediscover it. So I'm thankful for him. Uh, I would also recommend there's a little book called The Christian Faith uh, by Theodore Beza. It's like a little catechism, a little uh, mini theology. And uh, it's a little bit hard to find. You can find it from the publisher. We'll post it on the show notes. Uh, I saw it on Amazon, but if you get it directly from the publisher, I think it's Reformation Heritage Books. Uh, Easy to find there. It is in print. And over the course of about three pages, he talks about this. Hmm. So he covers everything, whether it be doctrine of God, uh, doctrine of salvation, but he definitely talks about law and gospel just within a couple, two, three pages. And the final one I would recommend would be on the academic level. Uh, and that would be in the works of Turretin, hmm. Francis Turretin, the three volume set. Uh, it's tough going for some, but he does a great job of making the the distinction between law and gospel. And he's really clear on justification, uh, Christ imputed righteousness, which complements the thing we're talking about. Uh, I, I think I com- I highly commend that to all pastors or serious uh, Bible students. I think you'll find it helpful. Yeah. Question and answer format in that three volume set. So it's a little bit easy to break down in chunks. Yep. Well, we'll make sure to put those uh, resources in the show notes uh, for today, but we're glad you're able to join us. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. Law gospel, not gospel. That's right. And remember what God has separated. Let no man join together. <laughs> That's right. See you next time. 